agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. Today, we're starting a series on the 2020 elections, with new episodes dropping on Wednesdays until we wrap things up in mid-December, at which point I hope at least all the election results will be in. Now, instead of the kind of basic mainstream media horse race coverage, our focus is going to be on policy. We'll be taking deep dives into the differences between Donald Trump and Joe Biden on issues like COVID-19, healthcare, immigration, taxation and regulation, foreign policy, race and gender, and uh, a few other things as well. And what I'm particularly excited about here is how we're going to be doing this. Northern Kentucky University has given me the opportunity to create a very special class with a small number of fantastic students who will be the driving force behind this series. And before we do get started, I want to especially thank my department chair, Karen Miller, College of Arts and Sciences Dean Diana McGill, Provost Suat Rollins, President Ashish Vaidya, and NKU Regent Rich Bainey for their help and support. I'm very proud to say that I teach at a place that truly does value innovation, outreach, and civic engagement, and not just in some mission statement, but in practice where it really matters. Because this is a college class as well as a podcast, the students will have prepared pretty extensively for each episode by researching the topic of discussion and writing a paper on it that I'll have reviewed prior to our recording. And I'll be doing the same thing, though, you know, I'm not going to be writing a paper or anything. So, and at the start of each episode, I'll introduce our topic for the week and kind of get the ball rolling. And from there on, I'm really going to be essentially a moderator. I'll keep things flowing, ask follow-up questions, and that sort of thing. Then at the end of each episode, we'd like to include a segment with your questions and comments. And that's whether they're directed at a specific person or just something in general you'd like to bring up about, you know, a topic we've covered, the format of the show, or really anything you'd like to ask us or tell us. And to do that, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. All right, with all those introductory remarks out of the way, let's actually meet the great NKU students who will be the focus of this series, starting with our first student, Alan. Hello, everybody. So I'm Alan. Uh, I'm 21. I lived my entire life in Erlanger, Kentucky. I still do. So right down the road from NKU, I would describe myself politically as a populist. I don't really lean left or right per se, but I do have a very anti um, sort of elite bias. So that's how I would describe myself politically. I'm pretty undecided on who I plan on supporting for president simply because we are in Kentucky and our electoral college votes are more or less preordained. So I'm open to looking around. So that's me. Thank you. I'm Doc. I'm 82 years old. I'm from Northern Kentucky, lived here most of my life, except for our four years, two years in Boston and two years in Baltimore working. Politically, I am a situational conservative. That means there are many things that I think do not need legislation or even discussion. I will definitely vote for Trump. He's not a politician. He's a no-nonsense businessman. He says what's on his mind, and he actually gets things done that he says he's going to get done. Hi, my name is Faith. I'm 22 years old. I'm from a very small town in Ohio, right on the Ohio River. I consider myself more of a moderate and an issue voter. I tend to like to analyze things and not let partisanship get in my view. And I will probably be voting for Joe Biden in the election. Hello, everyone. My name is Noah. I am 21 years old. I am from Northern Kentucky. And personally, I would describe myself as a Democrat. But more or less, I like to look at every issue that comes up and make sure that I understand what is actually happening. And for the 2020 election, I will definitely be voting for Joe Biden. 
Hi guys, I'm Olivia. I'm 22 and I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, most people who know me know that I'm a very vocal left-wing progressive. Um, and it's not so much about partisanship, rather just that I agree with probably 90% of democratic policies. Um, and I will absolutely be voting for Biden. Hey, what's up? Uh, my name is Skylar. I am 21. I grew up in downtown Cincinnati in a in like the little neighborhood OTR. I would describe myself as a left-leaning progressive. Uh, I wouldn't label myself as liberal, um, but I'm very anti-corporations. Uh, but I do plan on voting 100% for Joe Biden in November. Both major parties are deeply concerned about voting procedures heading into the 2020 elections. And of course, COVID-19 is a major reason for this, with 41 states having changed at least some elements of their systems you know, far more rapidly than they would in normal times in response to this pandemic. And the unprecedented number of mail-in ballots in already in a high-intensity presidential election year, combined with a potential shortage of poll workers and Voters and election officials both having to deal with voting changes, well, all of that almost guarantees a greater than usual amount of confusion. And added to that are concerns about the capability and some say even the willingness of the Postal Service to deliver ballots on time, as well as interference by foreign actors, particularly Russia, which unquestionably interfered in the 2016 election, as well as potential interference this year by China and Iran. And then finally, there's President Trump, who's repeatedly tweeted dire warnings about vote fraud. He recently told supporters in uh, Oshkosh, Wisconsin, that the only way he can lose is if the election is rigged. And he said that this may be the most rigged election ever. So in light of all of that, it seemed like the place we just had to start this series was on vote fraud and election security, two issues that, you know, we would hope we wouldn't be talking about, but are clearly front and center in this election. So we're going to start with talking about vote fraud. How common is vote fraud and how concerned should we be about vote fraud? So well, what do you what do you think about that? Who wants to start things off for us today? Uh, well, I mean, how concerned we should be about voter fraud as a whole, I think should be considerably low um, with criminally influenced cases because there's such low statistics behind actual found cases of voter fraud uh, between percentiles of 0.003 and 0.0025%. And I think that's generally very low to be a statistic for something that is being so drastically uh, ex expressed to us by our president. Okay. Okay, Skylar. Thanks. Thanks for that. Does anyone, anyone else have any thoughts on, I mean, is this a, is this a concern? Should this be a concern, vote fraud? Faith? I agree with Skylar. In the past, voter fraud is extremely low. And I do believe that the president is presenting statistics or not presenting statistics, I guess, on voter fraud that don't seem to match up with the history. Um, but I think a big concern for a lot of voters is the, unfund the unfunding or the not adequate funding of the Postal Service, which I do think, especially regarding the fact that over 500,000 ballots were not counted in the primaries, does present a legitimate concern. Okay. Uh, Doc, I think you, uh, you wanted to chime in here. Yeah, I, I agree that fraud is not the thing to worry about in this election. I think the thing that problem with the post office and the post office is just a big logistics company and you can't dump this kind of volume into a system that is freaky at best and expect these ballots to get where they need to be on time uh, and get counted in the proper in the proper time frame. So I think the fraud thing is just way overblown. The logistics thing is not getting enough attention. Okay, that that's a that's a great point, Doc. I appreciate you bringing it up. And so 
we really are dealing with at least two separate things here. There's fraud, which is efforts to intentionally change election results in an in illegal way, as opposed to issues with, as you pointed out, logistics. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. I want to, I think it's important enough to deal with separately. But before we do, no, I think you wanted to say something. Yeah. So to me, it's not more likely the fraud. It's making sure that everybody's vote is counted because like what Faith was talking about earlier, the 500,000 votes that were not counted in just the primaries to me is alarming because it's like, all these people voted for somebody and their voices should be heard. So I think in the article, there was a woman who voted, I think it was in the Pennsylvania primary and she voted for Bernie Sanders. And then she figured out after she voted, her vote wasn't even counted, which it's like, to me, if my vote's not counted, I feel like I do not have a voice in my democracy. And to me, having my voice in the democracy is um, huge to me. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, Olivia. Yeah. So I was just going to say um, the closest, um, presidential races in history um, have been between Kennedy and Nixon, who um, were Kennedy won by only 0.2% of the vote, and um, Bush and Kerry uh, uh, when Bush lost by 0.5%, but won five electoral votes. So I think um, with vote fraud, um, both intentional and unintentional, being um, in the thousands of 1%, um, it's not really a consideration as far as the popular vote goes. However, with um, a lot of races coming so close on electoral votes, I think the electoral college kind of makes it more of an issue because if there's a concentration of fraud or of rejected ballots um, for any reason in a certain district or state, um, that can make a big difference in who wins the electoral vote. Okay. Yeah, uh, Alan, you have a comment. Yeah, I really agree with what's being said here. Um, one of the articles I read was about Wisconsin, how they discarded a bunch of ballots. And there seems to be this idea that it's like this malicious thing. When in reality, a lot of these ballots were sent late. A lot of these ballots were filled in incorrectly. So I really feel like it's an information thing and a logistics thing that we have to be worried about. Like, I think it's going to be a, a 2000 election scenario where it's the, where in 2000 was like the punch card ballots where the ballot, the way they were done, it was incorrectly. Like a lot of people voted for. I think it was maybe Pat Buchanan, but like they meant to vote for out or I think it's just an information problem. And so there sound there seems to be a fair amount of consensus here from what I'm hearing that vote fraud, as we talked about defined earlier, isn't necessarily that much of a concern. Uh, I actually did some quick back of the envelope calculations to give people the senses, even if the uh, even if the amount of vote fraud were a hundred percent greater than is our hundred times greater, I'm sorry, than is uh, the number of credible cases that we've seen in the past, it would still only be 0.0077% of the vote. Maybe that's not down to the fourth percentage point. I don't know. But the point is, is not a whole lot. So, but there is that logistics element. That's the question that Doc raised. And so why don't we talk about that a little bit, that issue, especially if we're seeing expansion of voting by mail due to COVID-19. And well, is that a is that a good thing? And does it raise legitimate issues, if not a vote fraud, at least of uh, the potential for you know, ballots not being counted and people's voices not being heard? Something that, you know, Noah mentioned, you mentioned a concern about. What, what do you think? Um, so to me, I think it's a great option to have these mail-in ballots for people who are actually generally concerned for their health. If like, potentially going to the poll is going to put you at risk for COVID-19. If you are in one of those groups that potentially can get COVID, I think it is important to have that option. But I do understand and like see that it this could potentially cause for more issues to happen with the election. So I feel like we need to have like sort of like a backup system for if something runs into the issue with mail-in ballots that people like maybe potentially like if your ballot's not counted, that we need to potentially have them have like an option to vote again not have that vote counted twice to like make sure that they have the security and make sure they actually vote. Okay, that that's a good point. In fact, in in mail-in voting systems, there's a, a thing called curing the ballot, which basically means that if somebody votes incorrectly or there's a problem, they're supposed to be contacted so that they have the opportunity to correct that. But of course, when you're running into deadlines, election deadlines, that can be a fairly tricky thing. And, and as uh, as all of you know from the reading that you've done, that uh, that sometimes means that there are plenty of people whose votes don't actually get counted when they maybe would have otherwise if they'd actually done in-person voting. 
Uh, let's see. I think, uh, let's see, Olivia. So I just have a question. Um, so in the recent article we were reading um, about votes being um, rejected, um, and a lot of the reason was for late arrival, how late is late arrival? Because I know you're supposed to be able to postmark your vote by election day, um, but like how late does it have to be for it to not be counted? You know, and that that's a great question. And there's no one answer to that necessarily, because, of course, states all run their own election systems. We're going to get to the, the wisdom or lack thereof of that in, in a little bit here. But but and that there have been proposals, in fact, in some states to say, well, votes should be counted up to a couple of days after because of postal service issues. And then other people saying, well, doesn't that open the window for people voting actually after the election, which we don't want. And of course, that's an element that voting by mail brings into this, that element of uh, that extra step. And, uh, you know, that's something that actually Doc mentioned. Uh, and, and maybe this is a good point to to bring that up. And it's a really kind of uh, one of the great things about reading your papers is that sometimes I'll get a viewpoint that I hadn't thought of before, and it's always kind of a cool thing. And and Doc, I'll try to sort of summarize your viewpoint, which I thought was really interesting, is that in any multi-step system, well, every step of the system is not going to be 100% accurate. We all know that. It's impossible, essentially. And so what that means is that if you add more steps to a system, any system, you're going to introduce more error almost invariably. And if you think about it, voting by mail introduces a bunch of additional steps, requesting ballots, sending out ballots, mailing them back, going to processing levels at the postal service and all that. And even if all those steps are 99% plus accurate, that's still going to be greater you know, opportunity for error than if it's just in-person voting. So Give, I mean, it, is that a serious concern? Do you think about mail-in voting? I, uh, this is Doc. I, having been in the information technology business and dealing with systems with multiple components, you get used to the idea that it's the weakest link that destroys the system. Um, and Having worked at the polls where people actually go and vote on a voting machine and seeing how that works, the thing that got into my mind was I never heard a thing, and I usually hear things about, you know, would you come help count ballots? I never heard anything about that this this last go around or even this go around about where they're counting them, how many people they need to count them. I mean, just a few ballots at some of the uh, voting pool booths I worked at, uh, to count those as envelopes come in is going to be a horrendous task. And that just adds, again, uh, how 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 long can you do that and stay awake uh, and not and not get something wrong? Alan. Also really time consuming. And with some of these states um, having mail in ballots, they're allowing them to come in up until Election Day. We might not know the results from some of these states for days. And that really I mean, for some people in America, that's really going to already like they're already freaked out. So that's going to call into question the validity of the results, regardless of how well they were handled. That's that that's a great point. Uh, and I, I don't just say that because it's a point I was planning on raising and you raised. But but no, that's an important point, because there's the, the very real possibility with all this going on that we might not actually know who won the 2020 presidential election with any certainty for days or perhaps even weeks. And there are almost guaranteed to be a number of lawsuits, no matter what happens. And of course, as you point out, Alan, that that calls into question, at least for some people, legitimacy in a in a system where we're used to knowing the day after the election who won. And that there's a very good likelihood that isn't going to be the case here in 2020. Faith. I completely agree with all those statements being made. With that being said, I completely think also that one thing that has to be in mind for voters is that we are in the middle of a pandemic, and this hasn't been a normal year by any means. 
And this process, especially as of late, I don't think anyone could have foreshadowed even four years ago that this was going to be the situation that we were currently in. So with that being in mind, I think it's going to be hard to do, but for voters to keep in mind, to try to be as flexible as possible with this process, one, to ensure that these ballots can be counted for and that everyone's being safe throughout the process. Yeah, I think, of course, asking for patience from the public is oftentimes a, a precarious sort of thing to do. But but, yeah, I think you're right. We're going to we're going to need more patience, certainly. Uh, now, President Trump certainly isn't generally thought of as a patient sort of guy. And, uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about specifically his comments. He's been saying a lot about vote fraud and his concerns about vote fraud. Now. Even if, let me ask you this, even if some of the things President Trump says about vote fraud aren't literally specifically true, isn't the larger point maybe, or could you argue the larger point is that by maybe using a little hyperbole and exaggerating, he's bringing attention to an important issue that might not receive as much attention if he spoke like, well, a typical politician or you know, someone like me, an academic who's well on one hand, on the other hand, that sort of thing. I mean, is is President Trump's uh, are his public comments and tweets about this? Do you see them perhaps as either you know bringing to light, focusing public attention on this critical issue, or are they maybe doing more harm than good? What do you think, uh, Olivia? I don't see the issue of vote fraud as being nearly. Um, as concerning as Trump is trying to convince us that it is. Um, I think that he has purely political intentions because he has already politicized the virus to the, you know, and convinced a lot of his supporters and his base that the virus is less concerning than Democrats tend to think that it is. Um, and I think he knows that his base is probably going to be less afraid to go to the polls and vote because they're less afraid of the virus. Um, Whereas Democrats and people who are, you know, constantly watching CNN or MSNBC, which is, um, you know, always portraying how deadly and how scary the virus is, are more likely to stay home and want to vote by mail. And those people are also going to be less likely to vote Republican um, if they're afraid of the virus because they're Democrats. So I think it's more about, um, you know, suppressing the votes of people who would be voting Democrat, but who are afraid to go to the polls. Uh, Doc, I, I was thinking about you because uh, in your initial comments, you mentioned one of the things you like about President Trump is that he's not a typical politician. And so on this issue, clearly he's not acting like a typical politician. And so w what do you think? Is he providing a valuable service here? Well, I think he's doing this thing on fraud because he has been accused ever since he's been elected of being elected by use of fraud. Uh, the, the Russians intervened, Iran intervened, uh, God knows who else intervened to get him elected. So the Democrats and anybody who is a non-Trumper uh, has said he didn't actually win the election. He stole it because of all this interference from foreign power. So, uh, so now he is turning that around and going, oh, look, fraud. Fraud is trying to keep me from being elected. Uh, no, he is not much of a politician. I will say that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I think that's I think that's an important point, because, of course, if if you look at things from from that perspective and you, uh, you know, you accept President Trump's view that he did not, in fact, commit fraud, I think it would be the kind of thing that would make a guy a little sensitive about those claims for sure. Absolutely. Uh, Noah, I saw you. Uh, you wanted to make a comment. So to me, I feel like a lot of his comments are potentially trying to discredit this election if by any chance, because like. I think he's not potentially wanting to accept that he's not the most likable guy to some people. And so I think what he's trying to say is like, well, there's this going there's going to be this mass fraudulent voting. And so he's going to say, like, 
well, this is happening. And so they're trying to get rid of me. And it's, I think it's potentially him not wanting to accept responsibility that potentially he has not been what he has promised and what he has wanted to do with his presidency. I think it's potentially him saying like, I, I'm not going to win this election because it's the Democrats fault, but potentially he's not wanting to accept responsibility that he's not liked. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Skylar, you had a comment you wanted to make. Sorry, I forgot the mute button for a second. (laughs) It's a common Zoom Um, thing for all of us. No, not a problem. um, I feel that Trump is incredibly intimidated by the potential of losing. I don't think he has a concept of like being a loser, if that makes sense. He's been kind of on top of everything his entire life. He's always been successful. He's been uh, very well funded. Um, so I feel like the potential of having the presidency taken away from him really scares him. And I feel like shifting a negative standpoint on mail balloting and other forms of casting your vote by mail, um, which would allow more accessibility to more Americans. I mean, like you have individuals that live too far away from their polling locations and they can't like get there. So having the access to voting will allow them to vote this election. And it's been shown that there has been an increase of voter turnout in states with absentee balloting or mail balloting as an option. Um, And I feel that he's scared that more people that would vote against him would have that access that they didn't before. And trying to intimidate them and scare uh, voters into basically not voting. Olivia. Yeah. On the same note, um, regardless of COVID expanding the electorate has always been something that Republicans are opposed to um, because it potentially could uh, hurt their chances of winning and help the Democrats chances of winning because Voters who are have less accessibility to voting um, tend to be poor or minority voters um, who don't have maybe don't have a vehicle to get to a polling location or don't live close enough to a polling location, can't take off work on a Tuesday to make it to a polling location and stand in those lines, um, or don't even have a driver's license because they don't have a vehicle and it costs money to get a driver's license or a valid ID. So I think um, mail-in voting would give those specific voters who are more likely to vote democratically um, a chance to vote that they maybe haven't had before. And I think that scares Trump that he's going to have a lot more voters against him than he has in the past. Um, And I also just want to add, and this is going to sound really um, cynical, but um, the current rate, if you just uh, divide, you know, all global deaths of uh, by COVID by the total um, cases of COVID, is actually 3.47%, whereas I know um, we've been hearing it's about 1%. Um, And like we said before, the um, fraud rate is around 0.0025%. So um, if we are constantly downplaying, you know, on the Republican side, if we're downplaying the lethality of the virus because it's only, you know, 3%, then we can't act like 0.002% fraud rate is outrageous and and really high i mean it's one or the other okay that's that's an interesting comparison now i think what i hear a lot of republicans saying about this certainly uh there's there's not an official republican position saying we're trying to decrease voting but i think what a lot of republicans say is well we just want to make sure that it's secure for instance President Trump has actually not come out completely against mail-in voting in a number of his tweets and comments he said things like well, the systems that are in place in places like Florida that have had them in place for a while, those are fine. It's these brand new systems that open the potential for fraud. And is that is that a reasonable point to make that in creating, you know, not necessarily brand new, but expanding types of voting so quickly, these underfunded states are opening the doors to a sort of fraud that or, or miscounting, perhaps if we don't want to use the word fraud, that might not actually mean that the will of the people is uh, faithfully recorded. And in that sense, is is the president is President Trump? Maybe does he have a point about that? Uh, Alan, you have a comment. Yeah, I think that's a legitimate argument. A lot of these states 
don't have massive mail-in ballot infrastructures in place. And there is the potential that a lot of votes could be miscounted or thrown out because they were filled out wrong. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of lawsuits over that. But at the same time, why would we call that fraud then unless it was there was like a malicious intent? I don't think there's going to be like malicious intent in a lot of this. I think it's a lot of a lot of it's going to be accidental. But to like suggest it's fraud, I feel like that's an entirely different argument if that's the argument. Right. Well, and they, I don't know. You can maybe make the case that, again, President Trump being uh, uh, using his unique rhetorical skills and the word fraud has a resonance that uh, uh, incompetence or miscounting really doesn't with people. And so one case that I think supporters of the president might make is to say, again, even if it's not actually fraud, the result is to get people focused on it. And that's a good thing if it means that people are more, the election systems are more vigilant in ensuring that votes are counted correctly. And so we can forgive the hyperbolic use of the word fraud. Now, maybe we can and maybe we can. I don't know. Skylar, what do you think? I feel that there is a lot of human error involved with new systems like expanding. Um, and I also think that all of that human error also accounts to misinformation. And Donald, uh, President Trump's uh, tendencies to use like words that aren't necessarily the problem as fraud isn't exactly what he's focused on. He's focused on rather like the new systems not being secure enough. He's not explicitly saying that in his tweets he's overall generally speaking and i guess you could i guess equate that to misinformation being given by the president and i feel that that is a misuse of power and i think he should be more explicit and more and more forward with what he's trying to convey Okay. Um, uh, Olivia, you had a comment and then Doc will follow up on that. Go ahead, Olivia. Um, I also was reading that the votes that are rejected are more likely to be from um, low income, young and minority voters. Um, I'm wondering if maybe that's, you know, partly because of lower funding of postal services in those areas. I don't know if that would have anything to do with them arriving late, Um, but also surely, you know, people being less informed, less experienced with voting and um, more prone to making mistakes. So um, I know the Democrats are pushing for more leniency on counting those votes that perhaps have an error or have arrived late. But I think that the rejection of ballots is just another way to, you know, if the vote is expanded, um, continue to disenfranchise voters that, you know, have already had trouble accessing voting before mail-in voting. Doc. I think it was Skyler that mentioned the word new system several times. And that's a big thing. Here is a new system. Here, somebody do this. We haven't trained you. We haven't tested it. Uh, we just threw it out there, uh, give it a go, and see if it'll work. Uh, that's a big thing. Uh, there was also a lot of talk about the COVID. Uh, that's an interesting aspect. For some reason or other, I think COVID is a distraction from everything. Uh, either you get it or you don't get it. Good luck. I mean, it's part of being alive. Um, so, but, and the other thing somebody mentioned was flexibility. Uh, if you're going to be flexible in one area, you need to be flexible in a lot of areas. And there was a lot of hue and cry about, let's move the election day back. Well, let's move the election day back. Well, you've never done that before. We've never done mail-in balloting before. Let's give it a shot and see what happens. Uh, 
And, and certainly some primary election dates have changed and so forth, and Congress could, if they wanted to, uh, do something about that, though there was a pretty strong outcry after President Trump suggested that, that, no, if we were, uh, you know, if we had managed to keep the election date when we were fighting world wars and so forth, we were going to do it now, and obviously that's how it's going to be. To be and on the uh, there were a couple of hands that that went up after after you made those uh, uh, coronavirus comments, Doc. And I got to say that suggests that when we do talk about COVID nineteen policy, I think actually we're doing that next week's show. I think we're going to have a really interesting discussion on that. I'll hold off on that for now, but I I have a feeling we're going to have a really good discussion on that. But let's let's kind of put a pin in that for for right now. Um, Let's see, Olivia, you had a comment you wanted to make. Just real quick regarding um, what was said about COVID. I, it's really personal for me. I have a very high-risk household, and um, my mom has always voted. She's always been a voter, but she's diabetic and asthmatic, and she's terrified she's not left the house. She's teaching from home now because um, she, it, it, her likelihood of surviving it is low. So she will not vote. If she's forced to go to the polls this year, it will be the first year in several election years that she can't vote. Um, so her only chance of voting, like a lot of Americans who are terrified of getting the virus and terrified of, you know, is it worth risking my life to go and stand at a crowded poll to vote? Um, I mean, thankfully in Ohio, she, she has her absentee ballot and she's able to vote that way. But if it weren't for her ability to vote by mail, you know, this would be the first year in forever that she's not able to vote at all because she's afraid of literally dying if she goes to the polls. Right. Right. Um- See, I, other thing I wanted to ask, a kind of more general question, is one of the things I asked all of you to think about is more, I guess you could say, theoretically about voting systems in general. And, of course, in any voting system, we have to balance access to voting uh, with measures to prevent vote fraud. And different parties, as we talked about you know, a little bit ago, Republicans and Democrats tend to have that balance at different points. And in terms of what your ideal voting systems would look like, there were a number of common elements that I saw in your answers to that. Uh, Universal voter registration was one. Most people mentioned same-day registration, no-excuse absentee voting, more polling locations or better staffing. uh, Commonly, you mentioned that people shouldn't have to wait more than, say, on average 10 to 15 minutes to vote. And then finally, a paper trail for all votes to be cast. And so those were four commonalities. And I wanted to see if there's anyone who thinks that any of those things maybe aren't such a great idea before we move on to some more unique takes or different sort of takes on that. Any, anyone have any objections to any of those things? Well, okay. See, we can agree on certain things. That's always good. Now, there were a few ideas that came, I think, specifically from Alan and Doc that I think went a little bit against the general grain of what other people mentioned. Alan, for instance, you argued against no excuse absentee voting. And I think both Alan and Doc, you argued for a photo ID requirement, which a number of other folks said should be eliminated. And that's kind of a common response we hear on the left. So, Alan, I thought if it's okay, we could start with with you on this. Um, Can you talk a little bit about why you don't necessarily think that no excuse absentee voting or mail voting is is, uh, necessarily such a great thing? Well, in my ideal system, first off, for clarification, I would give voters three days to vote because one day is not a lot of time. The idea would be um, this system is still relatively new for a lot of Americans. There are a lot of things that can go wrong with mail-in balloting. It just seems easier if voters can vote in person. So we want, I feel like we want to discourage voters from voting over mail. We want to encourage voters to come and vote in person because there's a lot of, there's a lot less steps there than there is a mail-in balloting that can go wrong. But at the same time, we can't eliminate that because there are voters who just can't go and vote in person in the polls. And so they should have the ability to say why they can't go and vote at, at the polls. Okay. And I think that's a, that's a very important uh, caveat you offered there is it's your ideal system, not necessarily for life in a time of, of COVID. And, uh, you know, it brings up a point that I wanted to raise is maybe a little more of a, I wouldn't necessarily call it a radical point. Maybe you would. That idea that voting should be made as easy as possible. Now, there are some people who would actually say, 
maybe it shouldn't. Maybe we, there should be a certain amount of effort that goes into voting, because if it's too easy, then it's just too easy to just say, ah, hell, I don't know. I, I guess I'll vote without having to really think about it or put in. So if it is a civic obligation, should we make it as easy to do as, you know, going and clicking online or something? Or is there something to be said for asking people to put a little bit of effort into it and to actually sacrifice a little bit? Uh, what do you think about that? Skylar, I saw your hand first. Um, I feel that it shouldn't necessarily be as easy as clicking online because I feel like using the internet and Wi-Fi poses security risks, obviously. Um, but I feel that voting should be as cost efficient as possible without all of those hidden costs because you have parents that have to find childcare. They have to get time off work. Um, sometimes they, they just don't have the ability to go in a time frame uh, that voting happens in a, I think most polls open at 6 a.m. and they close around 8 p.m. Um, maybe is that sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, but I I feel that voting shouldn't be as hard as it is, and there should be more communication about going to vote. Like people should teach people how to go to the polls, how to register. Like there should be like more communication with the government and the public on actually voting, not just going to vote. Okay, uh, faith. Um, one of the things that I put in my ideal system was almost an incentive opportunity if you are going to register in person, being able to do same day registration, but also having like shorter lines for people who took the initiative to go and register beforehand. Because I don't think necessarily we all know what one another goes through in life. And there's might be a reason why you couldn't register beforehand, but you shouldn't also be unable to vote because of that. But offering small incentives like Order wait times will also help people be more active in that voter process. Right, right. Olivia? Yeah, I think, again, the problem is um, I understand the point of, of, you know, wanting people to put effort into voting because, you know, theoretically, maybe if they're putting that effort into going and casting their votes, they'll also put that effort into researching and making sure that they know who they're voting for and what they really want in the candidate. Um, but I think the problem is who is um, consistently disproportionately discouraged from voting and who is able to take on those sacrifices and who really can't um, because there are people who, you know, maybe do have the time in the day and maybe, you know, it's, it's not just about wanting to dedicate the time to go to a poll. It's that, um, you know, there are certain people who have to work, you know, 12 hours a day just to feed their kids and they can't, they cannot take off um, a few hours on a Tuesday. They just can't. Um, and there are people who, you know, don't have a car and maybe right now they they really can't afford the extra $27 or whatever it is to get a, a voter ID or a, a ballot ID. And um, also I want to add that a lot of the states that have implemented voter ID mandates have had, um, I mean, minuscule numbers of impersonation or not impersonation fraud, but in-person fraud um, because impersonating somebody else at the polls is the least common form of fraud. So I think when it comes to you know, having a valid ID, a photo ID. Um, I mean, a lot of a lot of state courts have actually ruled that that's racially discriminatory, and I think that um, a lot of these um, these barriers to voting are intentionally to suppress the vote of certain individuals who will vote a certain way. So, what I think you, you raise an important point is that it, it's one thing to say make voting to make voting easier or harder, but it's another thing if it's differentially easier or harder affecting disproportionately certain groups. And you mentioned the photo ID issue as well. And that's something, Doc, I saw you've had, you've had your hand up for a bit. And that's something that you talked about. And so why don't we hear from Doc and then Noah and then uh, Skylar? Well, photo ID, I think photo ID is a good idea. I mean, you can't do anything without a photo ID other than vote. I mean, you can't go to the bank and cash a check. You can't get on an airplane. I wonder if anyone has uh, tried to go get a passport and uh, jump through those hoops. Uh, 
on uh, with IDs. But uh, another another thing we're talking about making voter uh, voting easier. I think they ought to leave the polls open, maybe for a week, maybe over a weekend. Uh, that way, you don't have to take off work. Uh, somebody mentioned training people how to vote. What do they teach in school, for God's sake? I mean, let me teach you the Pythagorean theorem, but you won't be able to go vote. I mean, let's let's do a little civics here. Okay, uh, Noah. So I have, um, like, for me, I think one major reason, like, a lot of people do not vote is because they have lack of, like, access and knowledge. And so, like, for my key system, I was thinking about doing the national registration and then be, like, the time when you get closer to the age to vote, you start getting information and more information about, like, how to vote, where you vote at, like, how to research candidates. Because a lot of times it's, like, people are just, like, if they don't know anything, it's going to just, it could impact them later on if they don't know who they're voting for. And then for my system as well, I also talked about voter ID as well. I said, for me that for some people, you can have voter ID laws, but you have to have another way for people who do not have ID. So like I say, because I always have my ID on me, but not everybody has the same access to getting an ID. Um, The Brianna Center of Justice estimates that around 12% of eligible voters nationwide do not actually have access to a voter ID. And so, and that percentage is even higher for students, seniors, and people of color. So it's like, People that want to vote are actually going to disproportionately be impacted by having all these voter ID laws and stuff like that. So for my system, I said you can present a voter ID if you have it. But if not, you have to then sign a statement like saying, I legally swear that I am the person who is voting and saying who is voting for. So then if by any chance you are committing voter fraud, you have that legal binding statement to potentially pursue legal actions if needed. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Scholar, then Alan. Uh Olivia mentioned that a lot of the barriers to voting are racially suppressive, and they generally are. Uh, Growing up in a really heavily populated area with African Americans, um, they the polling locations are being moved consistently, um, and they are being put further. Um, My polling location personally was moved up a hill. And to a more difficult building to access for the people that live in the heart of downtown uh, Cincinnati. So you see all of these different barriers popping up. And by allowing not, not having IDs, it, it would, it would increase the ability for voters to show up at the polls because, like Olivia said, it's expensive. Some people just don't have the money to do it. Okay, um, Alan, then Olivia. Going off of what Noah said, I definitely agree The fact we should make um, getting identification cheaper. One of the things I proposed in my plan was uh, a lot of voters, once they've registered to vote, they're like sent like a registration card or something. I think we should just like, obviously, this is an ideal system. I don't think this is economically feasible. But like we should ramp that. We could have ramped that up. We could have made little like plastic voter cards that are, you know, have security features on them and then give them to every voter for free. You know, obviously that's not realistic. But um, I do think there's an argument to be made for um, having voter IDs. I think it should be easier to get them, obviously. But um, the thing I worry a lot about um, confidence in our electoral systems, especially these days and going to the polls and having to present an ID. I feel like that builds confidence in the system. Like, oh, you can't just go and vote and say you are who you're not are. I think an excellent comparison to that might be um, when you go to the airport and you have to go through security and all these new security features and stuff like that. A lot of that stuff, um, it's been, I think it's been proven, that stuff actually doesn't cut down on the likelihood of like coins getting hijacked or something like that. But it breeds confidence in the system and makes us feel more comfortable going out and doing stuff. And I think having confidence in our voting systems is very important. That's that's an excellent point. Uh, and uh, in fact, when you were saying right before you got to the airport thing, that's immediately what I thought of. And that's uh, I think that's an important consideration. Absolutely. Olivia. I just wanted to add on what 
um, Skylar was saying, um, because again, I, I, I come from a belief that everything is intentional and um, that suppressing certain votes is intentional with whether it be photo ID laws or, um, you know, removing polling locations, moving polling locations. And um, in Texas specifically, you know, a, a red state, um, hundreds of polling locations have been removed in recent years, um, specifically and primarily Democratic or minority areas, non-white areas. Um, and I, I think that's the, you have to recognize that some of it's intentional um, to suppress those of people who already have trouble voting. And, and you know, if, if you are poor and or, you know, have trouble making it to you know, a polling location that's just 10 miles further away, then you're probably not going to vote anymore. And um, I think lawmakers know that. And I think it's intentional. And I understand the confidence breeding factor of having, you know, more barriers in the system. But um, I think what's more important than that is is making sure that more citizens who want to vote have the ability to vote. And I think, you know, again, we need to make a distinction here. There are there are certainly people who want to suppress the vote because they believe it will be in their interest. There are also people who want to open up voting as much as possible, regardless of consequences, because they believe it will be in their interest. But there there might be a larger group of people on both ends who have ideological preferences, party preferences, and engage in a certain amount of motivated reasoning, cherry-picking facts and so forth, to try to rationalize or bolster what they are doing, certainly. And that, 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 that I think, motivated reasoning is certainly a bipartisan type of thing, for sure. Faith? Um, I think something that needs to be addressed in both of the system that we're dealing with and both of all of our ideal systems is funding, funding for elections. Um, I mean, a lot of people say, put your money where your mouth is. And if we really want confidence in the system, if we want easier, like more polling locations, if we want voter ID for all these people, either funding needs to be done or I really don't know how else you could do it. Yeah, and that that is that is an important uh, an important aspect of that certainly, and with states so strapped for cash, especially now, that becomes especially especially tricky. Though, of course, as part of the, the CARES Act, some money was given to them, but but yeah, funding is a funding is a big issue, and as you all know, as it's, it's uh, from the reading, and I'm sure listeners know that poll workers are not exactly lavishly compensated, and we need plenty of them, and so yeah, that funding is absolutely an important issue. Now, we're running a little bit short of time, but, you know, for, we've been talking exclusively about vote fraud. I want to talk a little bit about election security. And one of the questions I asked all of you to consider was how vulnerable, based on your research and reading, how vulnerable are our registration and voting systems to foreign uh, interference? And how concerned should we be about election security? Uh, what do you think? Is that is that a major concern that we should have that the Russians or the Chinese or the Iranians are going to somehow, you know, uh, affect the outcome of our elections? What do you think? Yeah, Alan. I think it is a concern, but I also think there's a lot of things to consider with that. Um, The intelligence report you had us read, um, it talked about how the majority of their efforts are going to be trying to persuade voters to vote a certain way through covert and not covert actions. Not a lot of their act, not a lot of their interference is really going to be direct. And that's not to say there isn't direct interference in 2016. I think one major election system was compromised by the Russian government, but that also, I feel there is a bulwark against that because all of our states have very different election infrastructures and there's a reason only one was compromised and that's because we have so many in place so i think that we do need to be concerned about foreign interference but i don't think we should let it consume our all of our thoughts because there are a lot of security apparatuses in place and the fact that our intelligence community already knows about all these states trying to intervene means we're on the right track i feel like yeah, that, that's a good point. And the fact that we had that experience from 2016 and measures that have been taken, uh, certainly the Intelligence Committee seems to believe that direct interference is less of an issue. Noah, you had a comment. So what Ala was talking about, I also feel like is really important. It's not like something we need to be like drastically worried about, but I think it is something we should be concerned about. Because like 
on the thing, it talks about there's three major currently countries that are trying to currently persuade our elections to go away in their favor. China, Russia, and Iran. And I think, like, as was Alan was saying, it's mainly trying to um, give them false information about candidates. And a lot of that is done via social media posts. Like, I, I'm sure we all, all, if we all have social media, have gone on there and seen, like, posts and stuff like that. And it's like, where did this come from? Like, and then I think what this, like, what's coming from, like, these fake social media accounts and, like, false information, I think we need to kind of push back more on our social media platforms. Like, I know recently Twitter has been, like, um, I think it's like, I guess they kind of like mute or um, kind of put like a fact check on some of President Trump's tweet. And but like, I know, like recently, Facebook has been pushing back a little too by saying that they aren't going to potentially doing as much. They have fact checking, but it's not as common as I feel like it should be done. It's like, they should be looking more into stuff when political things are posted to make sure that it's actually important information. So nobody's vote is swayed because of misinformation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Skylar, you, you had a comment? I definitely agree about the social media aspect uh, with younger generations coming of age to being able to vote. They use social media more often than older Americans do. Um, so by having candidates and our politicians expanding their advertisement, their campaign, just being more interactive with young people, the younger generation on social media would probably help their help their like approval ratings in office or would help them garner more votes to be elected. And I feel that foreign interference is a little bit more likely than domestic because the rates are so insufficient that it's virtually not there. Um, and if you just, I feel that by restricting voting methods to like, no Wi-Fi connection, no internet at all. Like, don't have any. It's all a paper trail. It's all on paper, um, and I feel like that would help limit the amount of cyber attacks because that seems to be the the target of right. what their interference with our election systems. Would be yeah, if it wasn't through social media. And we should point out that even though most election systems, the vast majority do now have a paper trail after the 2016 uh, sort of uh, lesson, I guess you could say, there still are some areas where there isn't a complete paper trail. And that, you know, is potentially an issue, if not in reality, at least in public perception. Olivia. I do just want to add that um, I, I, it's hard to know where the line is drawn between, you know, um, spreading, you know, rumors about a candidate and, interference but if we are considering um you know spreading false information intentionally spreading false information or um baseless information by you know foreign countries um we have to think about domestic interference as well because i mean there there are some really um like QAnon right now like that that really has the potential to sway voters and and there are a lot of baseless claims being made by QAnon, but it's getting a lot of attention in the media. Um, so I think, you know, with social media being such a um, major player in their information and how people, you know, debate and talk about the candidates and policies, um, I, I do think the fact checking on, you know, like Facebook and Twitter's part is really crucial. And um, I, I think they need to ramp up those efforts, especially with, you know, groups that are intentionally spreading really scary and baseless information to um, to criticize candidates and, and discredit candidates. Yeah, and, and that's a great point. It's not just about uh, China, Russia, and Iran. There are, there are actors within the country that seek to sow discord and spread misinformation for their own for their own aims, whatever they may be. And so uh, there are times as a middle-aged guy, I just long for the days before social media and all of these issues, but it's certainly not going away and it's going to be an issue throughout this campaign, this this election season, and certainly we'll be talking more about that, I, I, I'm sure, in various ways. But for now, I think we will wrap things up here on that today. And before we go, I just want to remind listeners that we are hoping to include a segment at the end of subsequent shows where we answer your questions or com you know, respond to your comments. So if there's anything you heard today that, you know, kind of made you go, hmm, um, 
We'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email, mail at politicsguys.com, or you can post a comment in the episode link we'll put up on our Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we will do our best to answer your question or respond to your comment in an upcoming episode. Also, I want to mention, if you would like a third full-length Politics Guys episode every week, you can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter. Supporters get also ad-free versions of everything as well as other good stuff. To get the details, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you can't afford to do that, hey, that's understandable. Times are tough. Just email me, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you set up with full access to everything we put out absolutely for free. And finally, we would appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show, leave ratings and reviews, and especially if you could share your favorite episodes on social media. And for more great discussions, check out our Bipartisan Politics subreddit. You'll find the URL in the show notes, or you can just search for Bipartisan Politics on Reddit. We also regularly post things on our Facebook page, which I mentioned before, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we are on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski. We'll be back with our weekly news roundup and analysis show on Saturday and the next segment in this 2020 election series on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.